Well, again, just welcome you here. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. Glad you're with us. Uh, if you would, grab a Bible and turn it to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. For those of you interested, I'll be coming out of the uh, ESV this morning, the English Standard Version. You can ring, read along with any text, but uh, for those of you who like to read along with the exact translation, that's what I'm doing. We are in our third week, and therefore in chapter 3 of Daniel, of this new, this new uh, series called Thriving When Adversity is the Norm. Uh, I was surprised, I probably shouldn't be, but a, a little bit surprised. I have several friends uh, who are actually preaching through Daniel during this time as well. Uh, apparently it's a very popular text. And the reason why it's popular goes back to uh, some of the introductory comments I've made from the first two weeks that I just want to remind you of today. Uh, one is this, the idea of Babylon is thick in this text uh, because it is literally talking about Babylon, uh, the kingdom of Babylon. But Babylon is all throughout the Bible and represents um, the uh, earthly uh, powers that uh, we run into in our world. And so Babylon is mentioned quite a bit in Revelation. Uh, for those of you who remember were around when I did a text uh, run through through Revelation, know that uh, Babylon is mentioned quite a bit. And um, it comes back to this Babylon, uh, that all powers are representative of this power we're reading about in the Daniel text, and that comes even when we get to uh, the Medo-Persians as well, even though they're not technically uh, the Babylonian Empire. Um, so that's throughout this, but also um, the idea of exile uh, is uh, throughout the text as well, and uh, then we also have the idea of exile uh, character as well, exile character, the idea of being like Daniel uh, the idea of cultivating Daniel's way of living, uh, his type of wisdom, the model for thriving, not just enduring, but thriving when adversity uh, is the norm. And then we also see Daniel living out what Jesus calls the people of God to live out, and that is the salt and light ethic. Uh, if you ever wanted a text that kind of shows you um, not, just, um, not just the broadness, but actually gets into a little bit of the nuance of what it looks like to live salt and light lives um, in sometimes a hostile culture. Uh, this is a text uh, that gives us uh, this wisdom. Um, I also want to mention this idea of exile and how uh, when we understand we're in exile, each text will build a different idea from week to week, and that is uh, that we need to understand some facts about living in exile. Uh, one fact is when you're in exile, your identity is always going to be under assault. There's going to be attempts to subvert it and to replace it. And we talked about that in the first week. What a just an amazing uh, testament to at least uh, something of the raising of these kids, of Daniel, 
and of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that their identity uh, was not shaken. Uh, it was established and built deeply into them. Um, and then also last week in chapter 2, we saw um, the importance in exile of gospel wisdom. Uh, gospel wisdom, which if you don't remember or you weren't with us last week, gospel wisdom is very perspective heavy. The idea of having a perspective of truth and of the world that you can kind of step back from and not be so overtaken uh, by the moment or the time in which you're living. Uh, it's also uh, a place or it's also uh, where peace is found. Um, and it's not just peace as in some sort of transcendent uh, bliss, but really a, a, a firm and confident calm about oneself, but a calm that uh, fuels you to not just sleep well at night, but a calm that gives you an impetus to serve, to serve others. Uh, Daniel was not in a position in having to reveal the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar uh, where he could just say, I know the truth and I can rest easy at night knowing the truth. He was also looking to serve those around him who needed to know the truth, including Nebuchadnezzar himself. Um, then we also saw uh, the importance of emboldened action that understanding that God's the one that's in control of the future. That's, that was a part of the big message of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, of the different levels of the statue, uh, that ultimately the rock, who is God in Christ, ultimately is going to take down all kingdoms. His kingdom will be the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom that will have no end, the kingdom that cannot be subverted. And that because of that, and your trust in that, you should have the confidence to be able to not give in to fears, but rather to be emboldened to gospel action wherever and whatever it might be. Because you know the sovereign God is in control and that the future is secure and we don't have to fear anything or anyone in this world because they're counterfeits by the way as we get into chapter three today i just want to mention it at the outset uh, we don't really know where daniel is during this episode at all um, there have been theories and whatnot i'm just here to tell you those theories are theories and that's all they can ever be uh, we just don't know it doesn't say he's not there um, and so when these three Hebrew young men were outed, uh, why wasn't he there? I just don't know. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and get into Daniel chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image 
that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, O nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Uh, real quickly, just so that you understand a little bit of the culture of the people in this area of the world during this time, there's very little doubt that most of them would have said, fiery furnace, bow down, this is easy, I'll bow down. Uh, not just pragmatically, but religiously, these were polytheists, most of them. And so they're like, eh, sure, another God, or maybe another manifestation or image of God. They would have no problem with this. So this wasn't like probably a a, a hard decision for most people to make. Therefore, verse 7, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Um, Let me take a moment and just um, break down a few things just so that we're on the same page and understand what's going on here. This this whole episode is Nebuchadnezzar's response to the revealing of his dream from chapter 2 that we read last week. This is his response. And again, if you, if you don't remember, what happened is he has this dream. It troubled him. It made him suffer. He couldn't sleep well at night. And so he, he tried to get all of his uh, Chaldeans, all of his astrologers, all of his readers to somehow tell him not only the meaning of the dream, but what the dream was itself. He kept the, the details of the dream to himself. And they were like, no way, we can't do that. You've got to tell us the dream to give us some information to work from. He says, uh-uh. I'm not having it. I I, I need something real. This is something very intense. I need to make sure whoever reveals this actually is revealing it. And the only way I know they're going to know it is that they can tell me not what the dream means, but what the dream was. So he keeps the contents of the dream hidden. And basically, the story goes like this. Daniel is able to tell him the dream, basically goes through the, the levels of a statue that uh, was a part of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and he explains that the first part of the statue, the head uh, that was plated in gold, represented Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom, and then that the next kingdom that was to come, basically, he explains it, and then he explains a third one, then he explains a fourth one, and and, and just by way of, of basic commentary, we believe these are referring to the Medo-Persians, uh, to the Greeks, and then to the Romans. And eventually, there's a, a final kingdom that is represented by a rock that is outside of the statue that takes the statue and crumbles it to the ground. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar hears this, and he's incredibly pleased. He's like, oh, this is great. You've interpreted the dream. But make no mistake, he was never pleased by the message. The message he rejected. What he was pleased by is, now I'm working from good information. Now I know what this is about, and I can take measures to ensure what this vision, this dream was about, never occurs. And so, it's likely that many years have passed when this occurrence in Daniel chapter 3 happens. He's built towards this and given this significant thought, significant planning. This is what we see in chapter 3 is likely the climactic event of many years of planning. And it's probably important to plainly state what is happening here. For one, Nebuchadnezzar is making a huge statement. A huge statement. Neb's building this statue. This was his idea. Nobody cajoled himself him to, into this. He wanted to build this statue, and it is a statement of defiance of the vision interpretation that Daniel gave him. It's defiance. He's saying that his kingdom actually will not end. And the statue represented his power and his will to affect that. This monument is meant to be a counter-narrative to the revealing narrative in his dream. And it means to communicate Nebuchadnezzar's power as overwhelming. Not only was the statue a statement, though, it was also a symbol that served a, a practical purpose. If you noticed in the text, so far, it's gone to great pains to remind us of all the people that have gathered. This was, again, a climactic event. So he gathered all the peoples, the diversity of peoples that made, that comprised the Babylonian Empire. He gathers them all up. And the purpose of the statue was to have a ritual litmus test. <laughs> a ritualized litmus test for Nebuchadnezzar's intent to consolidate his empire's power and to unify everyone by coercion, <laughs> unify everyone by coercion under his kingship. Nebuchadnezzar here is looking to secure and enforce the diversity of peoples to be loyal to his name and to his word. And so, as Dr. Danny Aiken of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary notes, this ritualistic service with music and prescribed actions, it was meant to be nothing less than a service of national, political, and religious unification. He's looking at the whole spectrum in unification. He doesn't want to just unite people politically, nationally. It's not going to happen ethnically because it's a diversity of peoples. He wants religion, too. 
It's all intermixed. And by the way, earthly rulers, oftentimes when they go for the jugular on unity, whether it comes from a totalitarian regime by use of force or comes from a democratic regime by use of manipulation, it's almost always seeking far more than just political means. It wants everything. It wants your soul. It wants your will. All right. This stands in contrast, by the way. Uh, You probably understand this, many of you, but if you didn't, just so I can say this, this stands in stark contrast to the gospel where unity and loyalty are a reality. We should talk about unity. We should talk about loyalty in and under the gospel. But, but the way it gets about unity, the way it gets about loyalty, devotion, and fidelity, fidelity to Jesus' word, it actually comes, though, from a different kind of power. It comes from the Spirit's ability to enliven and transform both our will and our desires. No threats or human-sourced coercion is necessary for gospel unity, actually, but merely hearts that are surrendered to and possessed by Jesus. Interestingly enough, and I'll leave you this before continuing on with the text, the location of the monument also had immense historical, symbolic meaning. You see, if you recall the history of the Bible, the area in which all this is transpiring is where another large object was built called the Tower of Babel, which was a tower, by the way, to cement or establish their own greatness and to consolidate or unify the ancient world. Sound familiar to anyone? So the symbolic meaning would not have been lost on many people. He's like, what the Tower of Babel failed to do, I will not. I'm about to establish a greatness like what none has seen. And I'm about to unify and gather and bring us together like we've never been before. So this episode unequivocally reminds us that this chapter is not about some battle between King Nebuchadnezzar and the three young men. I mean, they're important, and we need to see their role in this story. But this is not a battle between Nebuchadnezzar and these three young men. This is a story about King Nebuchadnezzar trying to do battle with the Lord God. A battle he cannot and will not win. Continuing in verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. And Chaldeans is, is short-term for uh, the astrologers and, and diviners and those who are meant to interpret and give wisdom to the king. Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And this phraseology probably indicates that um, there is something of a uh, 
there is something of a grudge they have with them. And it's, it's not really surprising because many years ago, by way of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed to a very high position that they had not, in the eyes of many of these Chaldeans, earned. And they certainly, even if they had earned it, shouldn't be in that because they're foreigners. The Jewish men, they shouldn't be in that role. To maliciously accuse them, that language itself, almost literally has the idea of them biting down on them and chewing them up. Like they're they getting ready to just devour them. And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 9, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Interestingly enough, the fact that they were turned in implies that they might have gotten away with it had they not been observed not doing what was ordered. And it also implies that there may be people all across who actually got away with not bowing. But that isn't this story. These were the statist tattletales that went out of their way to turn other people in and present them for punishment to the state. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are his appointed men. He wants to, he wants to make sure. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I set up? He just, it's interesting that he seems surprised by that, knowing and having observed their character and their devotion to the one true God. But bless his heart, he can't help it. This is what a power-hungry, power-feeding totalitarian acts like. He thinks everyone's on board with him, thinks everyone loves him. So, verse 15, he says, Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, you may have missed the instructions. You may have missed what you're supposed to do. Now, if you are ready, now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? If you're a Bible underliner and you have your physical Bible with you, this is what you underline is that last sentence. Because this really is the operating thesis or main idea of chapter 3. Who is the God who deliver you out of my hands? His, answer, his ask is really, 
what kind of power is there out there that can rescue you from my power? In fact, some of your translations actually use something similar to that language, for that is actually the idea it's trying to get across. What power can somehow subvert my power? I mean, and it's, it's not really a question. In his mind, he knows the answer. There is no such power that subverts my power. And this is the grand display of that fact. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in this episode, is arranging a personal ceremony. I mean, this is, this is fascinating. A personal ceremony for the three young men. Their own private opportunity at the litmus test. And so in this moment, this drops the pretension of any holding hands and singing kumbaya and songs of unity. That all of this represents this statue, this coming together in unity, this, this hearing the music and responding to the music by bowing. All the pretension has been dropped. All this pomp is merely a smokescreen for a culling. Are you on board with my kingdom and my vision? <laughs> the words of every dictator, despot, and totalitarian-minded man and woman. Are you on board with my kingdom and my vision? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, no need to have this private ceremony. No need to, to waste all of our time with this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. One author notes that these three young men understood that any potential death of theirs, if the Lord allowed them to die in the fiery furnace, would not be a pointless death. It would be a death that would be full of meaning. That at the very least, their deaths would have subverted the power of the authorities to crush integrity and to silence truth. And these young men would not allow that to happen. And if you haven't caught on to it, these three youths are the picture of what it looks like to engage in gospel-influenced, gospel-informed civil disobedience. This is a beautiful picture. You want to know and learn and be inspired by the kind of civil disobedience that is actually expected of us in the gospel, this is a beautiful picture of it. And by the way, their version of civil disobedience, just so that we're clear, this isn't passivism. This isn't passivism. This is actually a prime display of gospel courage. This is courage. This is 
This is action based upon what they believed about a sovereign and ruling king that's name was not Nebuchadnezzar, but Yahweh. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. He's unhinged. (laughs) He's unhinged in his anger. If Twitter existed, Donald would have nothing on what Nebuchadnezzar sang on Twitter. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. To add a little more depth um, and meaning or symbolic significance, it's oftentimes, um, and I think probably rightly presumed, that the very furnace that produced or birthed the gold-plated statue was supposed to be the one that executed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. (laughs) Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent, meaning he didn't want to waste time, and the furnace overheated as a result of him asking it to be raised seven times, the normal heat, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power, any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God 
of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And he hasn't, by the way, converted at this point. He just simply said, no one's going to criticize their God. Now keep worshiping my golden image. (laughs) He's made accommodations. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So in the prior chapter, God revealed the wisdom of the gospel versus lesser man-driven philosophies and wisdom. And in this chapter, it's clear that he is revealing the power of God and his gospel versus lesser earthly powers and the principalities that lie behind those powers. When the powers of this world or the principalities and dark forces of the spirit realm that are behind those earthly powers, when they exert their will and coerce idolatry, the question we're being presented with, again, going back to the idea of having exilic character, the question that we're being prodded to ask ourselves, how will we respond? How will I respond when earthly powers coerce, manipulate, press, And there's many ways, by the way, to respond. And and by the way, there's many powers in which we can be responding to. It's not just powers of kings. It's also the powers of desires that are found inside of us. There's also the power of pressure from those around us. Peer pressure. There's also power in the withholding or the controlling and the and the pressing out of information there's power in controlling the narrative of the world right and so there could be many powers how will i respond how will you respond when and as, and it's not just a when, it's as they exert, manipulate, and coerce along the way. Because it's not something that will happen, it's something that's happened. And it's something that's happening. And it's something that later today will happen again in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's your internal desires and the power of the flesh-fed desires, or whether it's a literal power and authority position over you. Whatever it is, how will you respond? And as I see it, uh, I'm not going to spend much time on this today, but I do just want to do a quick overview of what this text shows us. There's at least four responses that we could kind of slide ourselves into and consider how we might be responding to the variety of powers that are exerting influence 
manipulating and coercing us, how we're responding to them yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The first is this. We can respond in cowardice. In cowardice. We see this in what we might consider the crowd that was observed by the officials and by Nebuchadnezzar, what appeared to him everyone doing what he had asked. The capitulating compromisers from the crowd. So we ask ourselves, will we be the crowd submitting in cowardice to the powers that manipulate and coerce us? Because when we submit in cowardice, we're effectively confessing a trust in the power of kings and principalities. We're saying when we submit to those in cowardice, we are saying the kings and principalities of this world, which includes, encompasses, and grafts in also my desires, which are a powerful force, those things are far more powerful than any other power I can imagine. And when we submit in cowardice, we're, we're confessing that effectively. And when we teach this behavior to the next generation, we're nurturing timidity to powers. A timidity to powers, dooming them, our kids, to a life of pain, anxiety, and subjugation to all that would manipulate, control, and coerce them. We don't want anxious, timid kids. We want bold, God-trusting, believing God's sovereign kids that do not hesitate when coerced to resist. Brave, children, not timid and in fear of the powers that be in this world. So we can be those of the crowd. We could respond in cowardice. We could also respond in another way. We could respond in control and calculation. <laughs> towards control and calculation. Because this is what we see in the Chaldeans. We might even call them the calculating Chaldeans. The calculating Chaldeans, sure, they bowed. They were the crowd, but they were not satisfied to simply let Nebuchadnezzar's power be. In fact, if you look at the episode again carefully, they're almost accusing Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it's pretty bold of them. But this is a calculation on their part. They go to them and said, you remember those Jewish men that you appointed? They don't trust you. They don't respect you. They're almost accusing him of incompetence in this moment. They're almost mocking him. You remember them? They're calculating. 
They found an angle to control the situation for their good. Because you see, they are not satisfied merely to be like the rest of the crowd and at being simply cowards that capitulate. They're looking for a way to leverage this power play by Nebuchadnezzar and make it work for them. They're looking for their own power. Angle of control in a way that benefits them. See, when you and I choose the path of control and calculation in response to the powers of this world, we're effectively trusting in ourselves, our own cleverness, our own ability to kind of angle our way out of this. And when we teach this behavior to the next generation, we create a generation of kids that are always trusting in themselves, calculating kids that will always find the crack and crevice or the angle that will help them come out on top all by their own inner power. Oftentimes we think this is a, this is a reasonable compromise, a good way of not giving into the power, but rather kind of turning the power on its head and asserting our own. We're not going to be played by the man. I'm going to play the man. But what it is, it's just a hidden guise for our trust in self. That we are the true power. And that while I may have been, I may have been subverted by this, this, this king for now, I'm going to show him who's really in control here. And by the way, just so that we can get into the the politics of our nation. This is what happens when our president tweets. People just power play him back. They just trust in themselves back. Sure, they're not submitting, going along, but most people respond when they don't like something in our world. But trusting in themselves is very common. That might be our reaction. A third way that we might respond is represented by the soldiers, the loyal soldiers, the best of the soldiers who were told to bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and be the loyal, faithful servants and throw them into the fire. This is responding by way of collaboration. And in collaboration, the collaborators, the guards... They're effectively, due to their loyalty, due to their position, due to their status, with their king, are going along with their earthly powers in a blind way. You see, when we blindly trust in earthly powers from which we derive some sense, some sense of power from their power, 
We're effectively maybe not trusting in ourselves, maybe not completely trusting in them, but rather trusting in, ultimately, our status and our position with them. We've bought into the lie that status and position, or the right status and position, in alignment with powers, even if you don't buy into the powers, but at least the right status, the right positional location with them, puts us in a good spot. The soldiers that were burned are rarely talked about, uh, I've, I've noticed, but they are very much a vivid picture of what happens when one goes along with idolatry, when one collaborates. Even if one is not its overt or proponent, and, and, and many of these soldiers, not, they weren't necessarily proponents. We don't know that they were. But it's a, it's a cautionary tale that we should be careful with whom and what we associate ourselves we do not have to be true believers to become collateral damage with what's evil and what those who oppress those who love and trust in God. When you go along with lies or pan and ignore convictions that you should be paying attention to, you will usually get burned up as well. Finally, and this is the one we want, we can respond to powers in this world with courage. With courage. And in this sense, we want to identify the men of courage in this text. And this is where we do pay attention to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and take great note of these men. This is the last time we're going to see them in the Daniel text, but these are courageous men of conscience. Courageous men of conscience. They did not blindly go along with earthly powers. They did not trust in themselves. They were not cowards. They were just not a crowd that, that lived in fear of the king. But what they did effectively in their speech and saying, hey, the Lord can save us, we know this. But if he doesn't, our death still has meaning. And that's okay. And we still aren't going to bow. We're not going to go along with this. What they did, courage also has behind it self-denial. In other words, I'm willing to lose my life to gain it. I'm willing to lose everything to gain, capital E, everything. See, when we trust in the Lord, when we act in courageous ways, we know where power comes from. We know who has true power. And when we're putting this on display, behaving in this way, we're raising 
courageous next generation kids that will risk to the point of death for their faith. Many parents in their hearts of heart don't want that. They don't want that. They want safety. And this is where we begin to respond to powers and dangers in this world in controlling ways. Safety is merely, almost always, at the end of control. Courage says, though I do not want it, though I would not wish it, though I would pray against it, I want to raise the kind of kids that will reject idolatry to the point of death. I want my kids to welcome death over worshiping other idols. That they would place their faith in Christ and his overcoming power over the powers and principalities of this world. See, because gospel courage is a response to God's power. And earthly powers, when earthly powers threaten us, when our own lust for power tempts us, gospel courage responds by believing in a greater power that comes from Christ. These three men of God were neither cowards nor carelessly confident in their own survivability. They were humbly and convictionally courageous in light of the great power of their great Lord and King. They believed their God was the God, the Lord of fire. And that's why they didn't fear the fire. So as we close today, I want to share an observation from John Calvin from this text. Calvin pointed out that if God wanted, he could have extinguished the flames. He could have transported them out of the flames. He could have done any number of things in order to save these three men, but he saved them in the fire. Or through the fire, not from the fire. And whatever you think of the fourth individual in the fire, I personally always believe that in some way, even if it is truly an angel, it was an angel representing and imaging the reality of who we would know as Jesus. And Jesus, if we know anything from the New Testament and the story of the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was alone in the fire so that you and I would not have to be. And so to that end, we can sing and respond and pray and be grateful 
to the Lord today in our time of response. That God would give us the courage to believe in above all against the powers and principalities of this world, the Lord of the fire.